The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along, and to my fellow Canadians at home and abroad, happy Dominion Day 2022. Uh, Very muted observances, I would say. It is a tribute to the genius that is Jacinda Trudeau that ever since that god-awful sesquicentennial five years ago, he has basically managed to kill off Canada's national holiday. Nevertheless, it's 5 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That is 6 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past six in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas. 10 p.m. in London, 11 p.m. in Paris, midnight in Moscow, half past one in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who move to Iran for the half-hour time zone, 2.45 a.m. in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who move to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone, 5 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers and Perth, uh, 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne, and a rather civilized hour for the Kippers and Kedgeree for our listeners across the Pacific. Uh, it is Dominion Day. It will be Independence Day on Monday. That's also rather muted these days. I I, I was uh, dismayed, actually, to hear... Uh, the Fox News discussion of how it's going, because I thought, well, you know, Dominion Day is uh, gone, but uh, the glorious fourth will remain glorious. It doesn't look like that at all. Uh, let us get straight to your questions. R.B. Uh, Neuberg or Newberg? I hope uh, I've got it uh, right, at least one of those alternatives. R.B. Newberg, R.B. Neuberg. Uh, not sure how uh, American a- Americanized the name has become, but RB says, Happy Dominion Day, Mark. Do you think there's anyone in politics nowadays with enough toxic masculinity to get things back to normal in our world? Uh, no, I don't, because one of the paradoxes of the age we live in is that we have very uh, big government but very small politics, uh, which would appear to be paradoxical, but it isn't really. I mean, for example, I'm looking at a tweet that Laura Rosen Cohen (laughs) sent me, and this is from somebody called Sam Brinton. (laughs) And I think the way to... uh, Sam Brinton is uh, gender ambiguous. So Sam appears to have a shaven head, but is wearing a rather fetching women's pantsuit with a uh, necklace around it. Uh, the pantsuit ends at the knees. He's got rather shapely, he or she has got rather shapely legs, uh, ending in stars and stripes high heels. 
um, sort of pert vestigial breasts, I would say. I don't know. I may be doing him or her an injustice. But anyway, Sam Brinton says it's official. As of uh, June 19th, I now serve my nation as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Spent Fuel and Waste Disposition in the Office of Nuclear Energy in the Department of Energy. So this is a Deputy Assistant Secretary in the current government of the United States. And I know that sounds like in any other country that would be a completely crap and worthless position, but being in a deputy assistant under secretary of any old crap is worth it in the United States um, because it ensures that you'll spend the rest of your life uh, as an in-demand uh, pundit on cable news channels. You get to go on, you get invited on things like National Review cruises. If National Review still has a cruise, I remember many happy hours spent sitting next to deputy assistant undersecretaries for whatnot in the Ford administration, whom National Review evidently thought were still a thing. And, uh, and and sold cruise ship tickets. So it's a big deal. It's quite a big deal being Deputy Assistant Secretary for Spent Fuel and Waste Disposition in the Office of Nuclear Energy in the Department of Energy. And it's being held, the position is being held by some gender ambiguous, when I say gender ambiguous person, I basically mean some fella who likes to... Uh, uh, doll up. He's like, oh, I, hey, he uses they and then pronouns. I'm so sorry for mispronouning you, uh, Secretary, Deputy Assistant Secretary Brinton, um, and identifies as gender fluid. I mean, this is what it's come to now, isn't it? I mean, this is the thing that he's a, okay, they, whatever they're called, they are a nuclear, en- they is a nuclear engineer, and that's a pretty difficult thing to be, but they is gender fluid, and that is why they has been hired by Joe Biden to be the deputy assistant undersecretary of whatever. So politics has gotten very small. It's just playing catch up on this. You know, it's all pretty stupid, isn't it? Unless you think, as appears to be happening by the numbers, that basically in another 18 months, uh, 58% of Americans are going to be gender fluid and are going to be using the pronouns they and them. Uh, And in which case, uh, this kind of promotion, this shattering of the glass ceiling makes sense. But to go back to RB's point, you know, politics is... Politics is just playing catch up with a cultural avalanche here. And so it has to be, you know, and you look at those little pygmies at the G7. None of them matter. I mean, we don't know who's running the United States government. I certainly don't think it's this gender ambiguous Sam Brinton. But I know for certain that it isn't Joe Biden. He's the one guy out of 300 and whatever million Americans that we can say for sure isn't running the government. I don't know what Boris is doing. Boris is just, I mean, you know, when Boris supposedly ran The Spectator, he didn't run it, but he had a deputy who did. He doesn't appear to run Her Majesty's government in the United Kingdom. It's not very clear who else does? Justin Trudeau, I think, does run um, the government in Canada. 
And uh, as John O'Sullivan said of Joe Biden the other day, he's a nasty son of a bitch. That's true of Joe and that's true of Justin. Joe uh, avoids that characterization because he's so obviously out of it most of the time. On those rare moments of lucidity, he reverts to being the nasty son of a bitch he's always been. I think that's true of Justin too. Justin has this nice, caring progressive exterior, but he is also a mean and vengeful person. And the remarks they make are not the remarks they would make if they truly believed in diversity, if they had a healthy respect uh, for the general opinions of mankind. They would not govern the way they do. They are purposeful people embarked on some huge transformation. But in a way, they're just playing catch-up to the general culture. Um, and I think that's where this battle has to be has to be fought, ultimately. Dale Owen says, Mark, is Canada a nation of diverse immigrants or a nation founded by Quebecois, Acadians, and Anglo-Celts? Which description do you find more apt, or do you have a better definition? Says Dale. No, we... <laughs> What were we talking about the other day? Oh, I think it was uh, Sudan with Alexandra Marshall on the Mark Stein show. Um, The Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, which became independent on 1956 and has just careered uh, through the usual half century, what a little more now, 65 years, two thirds of a century of coups and dictators and more coups and more dictators. In fact, there's they're shooting civilians in the streets of Khartoum right now as I speak. So it's business as usual in Khartoum or so we think. But in fact, everything that works in that country, uh, the British put there pre-1956, And everything that doesn't work is the result of these crappy dictatorial asses. And I I happened to say that on TV, and I said to Ofcom, the UK regulator, you can have that as a freebie. Go on. That's just, if you need an excuse to open another investigation into me, you can have that as a freebie. But we all know it's true. And the, the fact of Canada... Uh, uh, if you, if we still had museums in Canada, if we still had statues in Canada, uh, you would understand that, as was the case before multiculturalism culturalism was invented, there were two founding peoples, the French and the British, and that boils down as a practical matter to uh, the English, the Scottish, and the French. Not really a lot of Irish, although they were very helpful in. Uh, settling eastern parts of Quebec and mating with uh, French Catholics. Useful service. Not everyone would be willing to do it, but the Irish pluckily stepped up to the challenge. Um, and uh, although I know Dale is Welsh, uh, not, a lot, not, not a lot of Welsh influence in Canada. That's the reality. That's who the country was built by. When we in the old days when we we had an invented mythology about Canada, oh, Vimy was the great founding moment of, the, 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 for non-Canadians, the big battle uh, for non-British, the big battle in the Great War at uh, Vimy Ridge. It was, we mentioned it on the 100 Years Ago show the other day. But the fact is... The fact is that most of those people fighting at Vimy were of British stock who thought of themselves as British subjects. It's not entirely accurate to call it the founding act of 
Canadian nationhood, back when that was a fashionable concept. What's fascinating is the way that Justin's dad, who was a much uh, greater intellect, Justin's dad basically decided to reinvent Canada in his own image in uh, in the late 60s and 70s and early 80s. Um, but it, the fact is, Justin has managed to kill off that Canada too. That's what's so, and that's why I still call it Dominion Day. You know, and the people, even people who read Stein online, know a Mark Stein club. Oh, not give it up, Stein. It's gone, Dominion Day. It's never coming back. It's Canada Day now. Why can't you just say Canada Day? Why do you have to be uh, such a stick in the mud right winger? that you uh, attach yourself to an obvious lost cause like Dominion Day. (laughs) Well, I didn't have to live terribly long to see Canada Day become an even bigger lost cause. Uh, And that's why it's being called New Day in Winnipeg at this moment. But that's the reality. You know, Canada, the Canada that other people want to come to, was basically built by Anglo, Scots, French people. And so, and I say that as uh, you know, my my mother's Belgian. There's very there's a, at least one very pleasant town, on the lower north shore of the St Lawrence River. Uh, that is, uh, what is it called, Bay Johan Bites or whatever that guy's called, the, a town that was sort of settled by Belgians. But other than that, I, I would be talking complete bollocks to say that Belgians had made an almighty contribution to the building of Canada. It's not good. It's stupid to tell these lies. I don't understand why even anybody can pretend it's true. Eric Redmond says, In Fidel Trudeau, uh, Canadians as Americans have essentially stepped on the same rake and installed the worst of all possible regimes. Quoth Fidel, uh, Justin, there are still people who don't feel safe walking the streets of their communities uh, and who still face systemic racism in their daily lives. And Eric adds, channeling the insufferable airheads, airheads, Imbram X. Kendi formerly Henry Rogers from Queens, and Looney Robin D'Angelo. Such is Justin Downer Trudeau on Canada Day, soon to morph into New Day. Uh, Thence he committed to, quote, break down the barriers that divide us, that is, unless you drive a lorry. No, nothing is more divisive. He's basically dividing everyone in Canada from their past. That's, that's, uh, you only do that. You only do that if you are um, building a permanent year zero, as Pol Pot did in Cambodia. You know, if you say to yourself, well, we got half a million of history invested in this soil. Uh, and then Justin comes along and says, that's evil. You've got to throw it away. And we start anew in the glorious new day, as Winnipeg has renamed Canada Day. That's a totalitarian act. That's the ultimate totalitarian act, because you're not presuming, like the more nickel and dime dictators do, simply to order the present day to your requirements. You're ordering, you're now reordering the entirety of human history to your requirements. And nothing good will come of that. And there has to be a pushback against this. 
There has to be a pushback against this. It's the only reason, you know, I, I'm I'm always touched by emails I get from people who say, oh, I, 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 I watched that Sunday poem of yours last week. I didn't really, I didn't know that poem. I never heard of it before. I'm sometimes astonished by this because I think I belong to the last generation that was actually taught stuff in schools uh, in a coherent <clears throat> way. Uh, certainly my kids weren't. And um, I'm, always, uh, I'm always surprised and touched by people who discover things that actually ought to be part of the civilizational air we breathe but which have now been destroyed by the grunting thugs uh, who are killing our planet. I mean, the hour is very late. The hour is very late. Mr. J writes, Oh, what's happening to the 1st of July? Dominion Day had a majestic historical ring to it. But no, they had to switch this to the generic bland Canada Day. And now, if rumors be true, Winnipeg has taken it upon itself to dub July the 1st New Day. New what? Like Pol Potish Year Zero? Given the woke rush to trash the past, who can tell if that is the spirit of it? No, it's undoubtedly the spirit of it. New Day. Uh, Canada Day was bland and generic, except when you're dealing with these revolutionaries, you can't be sufficiently bland and generic. So even Canada Day became offensive, became one day. I can't really reveal my source for this because it's not it's not really fair, but you know, there were people who, when he bollocksed up the 150th birthday, which should have been a great thing. For my kids, it, you know, it should have been, that should have been, you know, a, a, great, a great thing to be part of a great national event. He killed it stone dead. And, uh, and I would bet that the way we're going, we're heading up to the 250th birthday of America. I will bet given the way things are going in a couple of years, that uh, AOC and co. will manage to kill that stone dead. Um, but it is Pol Potish. It is Pol Potish. The arrogance uh, on the one hand, but also the single-mindedness to know that in order to exercise full control over the future, you have to destroy the past. So there's nothing to go back to. I keep talking actually semi-seriously about forming the 2019 party, a single-issue party like the Brexit party or whatever, whose only purpose is to wind back the clock to 2019 before uh, COVID stand took hold of all our lives. But, the, but what they're doing, you know, we live in a hyper-present tense culture, and what they're doing is so transformative that soon actually people will forget that there was a 2019, that there was a time three years ago when you could uh, have a Mark Stein cruise without everybody having to be vaccinated, that you could uh, get on a, that the the cruise could depart from uh, Rome and you could fly from uh, America to Rome and maybe stop off in Paris en route and spend a couple of days in France and then fly on to Rome and all. And freedom of movement is now dead, now dead, and people will soon forget. You know, in the way they accept shuffling like a great bovine herd uh, through the airports, which we have been doing only since September 11th, 
2001, shuffling, shoeless, degraded, having our uh, luggage picked apart by stupid people who break and smash things and decide arbitrarily about the consistency of the pumpkin pie you're taking home for Thanksgiving. And we've all gotten used to it. We've all gotten used to it. Do you remember how quickly we got used to it? It doesn't make any difference. They haven't caught a single terrorist. All that's happened is that the, the terrorism regime they introduced because some Muslims mostly citizens of Saudi Arabia, operating from Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, launched a jihad against the United States. And now the entire civilized world is, in fact, the victim of uh, that. Instead of going to... The, the Taliban are laughing. They've got more than they've ever had before. The Saudis are laughing. They're telling Joe Biden, oh, no, we don't think we're going to give you any more oil. And the only people who still are living in 9-11 now and forever are airline passengers in the United States. And that's the way it's going to go. That's the way it's already going with the world of 2019. It's as lost to us as the world of September the 10th. And they're pretty confident about being able to do that. Tony Allwright, uh, one of my fellow Irishmen. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean uh, I fly all flags these days. You have to. <laughs> you never know when. Uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that I never used to believe in all this uh, multiple passports things because I thought it was just something that terrorists needed. But now if you want to go anywhere, you need to have a, re a selection of passports just sewn into your coat lining because you never know, uh, as these COVID rules or whatever change from day to day, you never know what you're going to need. So I look on Tony as my fellow Irishman. Uh, Ireland is much on my mind these days, one way or the other. Anyway, Tony's from Dublin, and he says, my question, Mark, it's more of a request. When you introduce your Q&A with all the time zones, can you please state the date? He's got me there, you know. Uh, that's I keep going on about how it's uh, 6 p.m. in the uh, Maritimes and it's 10 p.m. in Dublin. Uh, but I don't actually say 10 p.m. on what date. Uh, and Tony says this is because many of your listeners, well, one of them anyway, download the action replay to play in the car later. And it would be helpful to know which particular Q&A they can stack up. We are listening to many thanks and keep up the great work. OK. I think I said Dominion Day uh, 2022. So if you <laughs> know your Canadian public holidays, Tony, you should be able to identify today's show when you listen in future. Um, but I will try and do that. That's actually an excellent suggestion, and we do appreciate those. Charles Sharpless writes, from Loxley, Alabama. Bam, uh, when the midnight choo-choo leaves for Alabama. I'm very interested in 100-year-old songs because, as I said to you, we briefly had a producer who said he felt uncomfortable about the 100-year-old songs on the Mark Stein show. I don't know where he went. I'm not sure he's working in TV anymore. Anyway, Charles Sharpless. 
from Loxley says, Greetings, Mark. Congratulations on another outstanding week of entertaining and informative GB news presentation. For an American Anglophile like myself, it's the perfect after-work news hour. Even so, if you wouldn't mind donning your Cassandra of Western Civilization cap for a moment. I wish I could take credit for the conception, but a commentator named Gonzalo Lira recently mentioned the millions of migrants who've arrived in continental Europe the last few years, who have no sense of loyalty or cohesion with their German and French neighbours, and the vast majority of whom depend on the increasingly broke governments for living expenses. As it relates to themes in your book, America Alone, what do you think will become of the social situation on the continent? once the combination of winter and recession hits Europe later this year? And how much lag time will there be under the same state of affairs until the same state of affairs occurs in the inner cities and the southwestern states here in America? On a lighter note, I hope you and yours have a wonderful 4th of July weekend and are able to get some well-deserved rest. Uh, Same to you. Happy uh, Independence Day to you too, Charles. These situations, you know, we often have, um, we often get into these arguments, you know, I, I do a fair bit of the don't wave your constitution at me thing. And then other people, there are people who like waving the constitution who think that constitutional monarchy is a load of rubbish. But as always say, these aren't worth talking about because right now we're all going off the cliff together when when we're at the bottom of the cliff and we're all smashed up and we're in the rubble then it might be nice uh, you know and we've started to get on our feet again then it might be nice to indulge ourselves by having a conversation about the the particular merits of this thing but we're missing the big picture as you say the number of people arriving in uh both Europe and in the United States, is beyond the capacity. Even even if we still had a culture that was an assimilationist culture. Uh, I'm just preparing our 4th of July show, for example, and I'm looking at the... um, at institutions like the League of Foreign-Born Citizens, for example, which was a big thing in New York and other American cities, Uh, in the early years of the 20th century, and whose main purpose was to demonstrate that these people with the odd-sounding surnames were as American as anybody called Lincoln or Jefferson or whatever uh, were. And we don't have that kind of assimilationist culture in the United States, and they certainly don't have it in Europe. And on simply on the sheer numbers... Why do, for example, why do Democrats want to abolish the the Electoral College? Because at that point, uh, states states don't matter, whether they're Democrat or Republican. If you look at a state like Wyoming or a state like Vermont, they're outpaced by the, basically by the illegal immigrant intake every five or six weeks. Uh, so though they become, if you have a national vote for president, all these little rinky-dink states like Wyoming become entirely irrelevant. That's how the Democrats think about it. And uh, the, the, what it's going to be for you... Now, what it's going to be for Barack Obama is 
uh, a minor inconvenience. He'll ha they'll have to be a bit more careful if they're actually driving around on the ground. So they may, may need to evolve from the 40-car motorcade to a 200-car motorcade just to stay safe. But if they're just uh, coming in by private plane to his compound at Martha's Vineyard and the compound is secured, he'll be fine. But for everybody else, it's going to be a great big seething uh, hell. Not, I'm not thinking of Latin American hell because they're, they're relatively homogenous by comparison to the hell we're creating in the US or in Europe. Because you're going to have some basic competition. Uh, a lot of, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, these, uh, our, our nations are broke. They can't afford these mid-20th century social programs. And the demographic reality, for example, in Europe, it's a question of whether Ahmed and Mohammed are willing to pay for Fritz and Jean-Pierre to play shuffleboard at the retirement home for the last 30 years of their life. And the obvious answer to that would be no, they're not going to be. But that's true in America, too, where a, a an ever larger Hispanic population, actually in America, an ever larger whatever population is going to be willing to uh, pay for Bud and Earl. Uh, retirement. Uh, social, the social democratic state depends on a large uh, degree of social cohesion. That's why it was notably successful in the Scandinavian countries, where basically in Denmark, everyone until a generation or so back, in Denmark, everyone was Danish. In Finland, everyone was Finnish. In Norway, everyone was Norwegian. Now in Sweden, uh, the, the Swedes are going to be in a minority pretty soon. And then whether a young population, it's one thing It's one thing to ask people to pay for their own grandparents. It's quite another thing uh, to ask people to pay for people with whom they have no connection. That's why I think this is going to be big and bloody and messy and awful. It's not going to be pretty. It really isn't going to be pretty. The idea that if you know post-imperial decline in Europe, if you look at Vienna since the fall of the Habsburgs, if you look at Lisbon, if you think it's and you think to yourself, oh, that's what decline is. It's not going to be like that. This is going to be a blood-drenched hell. They're built. And again, you know, listen to their language. The, the best way is just to assume they mean the things they say. And the question is, when they say that they hate your history, and I'm talking now to, I'm always touched because I'm an interloper here. And as I always tell people when they say, well, you're not, why are you talking about America? I always say, fine, if you want to call up and have me deported, uh, I wouldn't disagree with that. I entirely accept that. But one of the things that always touches me, if you go to, the Coolidge, uh, the, the, the Coolidge homestead in Plymouth Notch, Vermont, and you scramble up that little hill and you are, uh, eventually identify the, uh, the president's gravestone. The only thing that's different from his and all the others is he's got a very tiny eagle on his. And if you spot the eagle, that's okay, that's Calvin Coolidge. And the next to his left are the seven generations of Coolidge's before him, 
who helped build Plymouth Notch, that Vermont. So it's interesting to me. If you happen to be an American native, if you happen to have deep roots in this sod, or if you happen to be uh, an uh, Englishman in England, or a Scotsman in Scotland, or an Irishman in Ireland, or a Frenchman in France, and you listen to what these people are saying, they're not really talking about statues. They're not really talking about the names of streets and public buildings. They're talking about the society that your grandparents and great-great-grandparents and great-great-great-great-grandparents helped build. And they're saying it sucks and we hate it and we want to destroy it. And somewhere in that equation is also the fact that we don't just hate the statues of your great-great-grandfather. We don't just hate the little village where your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather is buried. We actually hate you and your family for the society that you have built. And uh, I think it's, it makes us... And speak, just speaking as someone who's a bit of a rootless cosmopolitan, who's lived hither and yon, who's drifted across the map... I think it's worth taking people at their word in the absence of any other evidence. So I think it is going to be bloody and it's going to be unpleasant and uh, you're not really going to you're not really going to like I mean Canada Day, Dominion Day, New Day, whatever you want to call it. What exactly are you celebrating? Are you celebrating uh, the 155th birthday of a uh, a state that was not a sovereign state. It was a, it existed. It was it's not an independence day. It's not a declaration of independence. It's some strange halfway house where you achieve responsible government in a new nation uh, that nevertheless is doing things the way some much older nation across the Atlantic did. And as I always say, if you basically read the British North America Act 1867, which is Canada's constitution, that's basically be a, been applied identically with insert name of nation or territory here, where the word Canada is. That's been applied to dozens of nations and territories the, basically all over the world, every corner of the world basically has the 1867 British North America Act slightly rewritten and with a new name in it. And that's true in the Caribbean. Uh, that's true in the South Pacific. That's uh, true in Africa. That's true, you know. And so, um, we, and so that ought to be something to be proud of. I mean, there must be something it has going for it the 1867 British North America Act, or it wouldn't have been duplicated. They wouldn't have been running it off the photocopier all the way to whatever it was, South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands Constitution a couple of years. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't be just running it off the photocopier, getting the white out and whiting out Canada and putting the name... So that you would think would be something... No, but no, it can't even be mentioned because they hate it. And they want to destroy it. Uh, what a cheery. <laughs> it is Dominion Day, though. I, so I, let's have a musical interlude uh, uh, before we go too far into the abyss of despair. Uh, I think we need... I might start actually just doing... I might, we might switch to a new format where it's like 
five minutes of apocalyptic despair and then a jolly sing-along because we need, God knows we need something. Actually, I am quite buoyant. I'll tell you, I'll, maybe I'll explain that after the song. But anyway, it's the Minion Day, so we've got to have a Canadian musical interlude. And this is a Joni Mitchell song from my favourite Joni Mitchell album, Caught and Spark. Uh, and I must have seen Joni sing it half a dozen times over the decades on both sides of the Atlantic. Don't worry if you're not a Joni Mitchell fan. You think it's going to be a bit dirge-like. Um, but uh, this one I like. It's always very jolly. Very, As I said, I've seen her do it live maybe six or seven times. And I don't suppose I'll be seeing her do it live ever again, which makes me sad. But I add it to the long list in this fast, shrinking world of shrunken horizons. Uh, I add it to the long list of places I'll never go again and people I'll never see again. It has a magnificent opening line. He was sitting in the lounge of the Emperor. Hotel. And when I was a kid, I got confused and thought the guy was sitting in the lounge of the Empress Hotel, uh, which is in Victoria, British Columbia, and serves about the swankiest afternoon tea on the west coast of the Americas. Uh, in fact, I know a few of you who were cruisers on the 2019 Mark Stein cruise back in that lost world of 2019 and that fabulous cruise we had. Um, and I know a few of you cruisers uh, stayed at the Empress in Victoria the night before departure. So uh, the Empress Hotel seemed an odd place to be propositioned by a blousy good time gal uh, perched on the bar stool and some years past her best by date. I'm rough, but I'm pleasing, as Miss Mitchell sings. And then I paid a bit more attention to my record and I realised it was not the Empress Hotel but the Empire Hotel. There are very few Empress Hotels in Canada but quite a lot of Empire Hotels which are often run-down lodging houses. And the one the author had in mind is on McIntyre Street in Regina, Saskatchewan. And half a lifetime ago I finally got to see uh, the Empire Hotel uh, in Regina, Saskatchewan. I wandered into the lounge of the Empire Hotel for diversion, just like the guy in the song. And uh, just like the song, the jokers were glued to that damn hockey game on the battered TV behind the bar. And I took a seat and a rough but pleasing lady slid along next to me and suggested I buy her a drink. And I thought, oh God, I'm living in the song. I'm, li I'm living in a stage version of this song. It's a familiar vignette, vividly conjured by the lyric, and it's great fun for a really tight band to kick around. Just for Dominion Day, Joni Mitchell, raised on robbery. He was sitting in the lounge of the Empire Hotel. He was drinking for diversion. He was thinking for himself. A blue money riding on the maple leaves. Along comes a lady in lacy sleeves. She says, let me sit down, you know.
Happy Dominion Day with Joni Mitchell and her killer band. Sitting in the lounge of the Empire Hotel in Regina, Saskatchewan. That is, uh, that is a great track. And as I said, it's from my favourite Joni Mitchell uh, album, Court and Spark. Although I do love it if she has a really good band with her on stage and uh, and she does that uh, music for Dominion Day on a Dominion Day edition of Clubland Q&A live across the planet Scott Scherzer writes from Miami Beach Mark I don't wish to get you in a huff regarding the constitution the constitution yeah, I'm told I don't say it properly it's not a constitution it's the constitution you're darn tootin' it is Tut, tut, Constitution, goodbye. I don't wish to get you in a huff regarding the Constitution, but can you take at least some solace in the recent SCOTUS decisions? I never thought they would have the intestinal fortitude to overturn Roe, and their rulings on the Second Amendment and federal regulatory agencies was the icing on the proverbial cake. I agree with you that a nation dependent on nine unelected judges is not worthy of calling itself a republic. It is my hope that with these major decisions, the Congress, the states, and the people will assume the roles which the founders intended. As we approach Independence Day, am I being naive? Yes, next question. Or is there a reason to be optimistic? You know, I am as grateful as anybody for the Roe versus Wade decision, Scott. But as I had occasion to say to, I think I mentioned, did I mention this last week? I said I'd been talking to one of my lawyers on one of my many cases. And I mentioned on Passant, the uh, Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, that in the early 30s, around about 1930, had jurisdiction over a quarter of the planet. And he was going, wow, because he's thinking of an ultimate appellate court in the same way as the U.S. Supreme Court now behaves. So imagine that, you know, you're on the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council and you can introduce gay marriage for a quarter of the planet. Well, no, it didn't work like that because they had a totally different conception of what it is that a judge is meant to do. So as I our little conversation developed uh, with Michael, my excellent lawyer, he's a brilliant lawyer, I owe him an awful lot and he's tremendous uh, company. And uh, every so often we, we put him on GB News to comment on uh, an American law, uh, American uh, legal case or whatever. Um, but, you know, he was talking about the excellent, brilliant decisions of the Supreme Court and this, that and the other. And I said, well, may, most of these historic decisions are actually just correcting previous historic decisions, whether you're talking about Dred Scott or whatever. And in this case, yes, three cheers for the Supreme Court for correcting what the Supreme Court did half a century ago. That's actually the problem right there, that they finally corrected a decision they, you know, the body, the Supreme Court, regardless of the individual judges on it, uh, the Supreme Court has finally corrected the Supreme Court's mistake. And this is why I don't like rule by judges, which is what we have now. At the moment, I mean, the way the Democrats are talking, 
uh, there's going to be 147 judges on the Supreme Court, and no one's going to know the names of any of them, uh, but they'll all be ruling in the Democrats' favour. I mean, the Democrats have actually... Now, I have mixed feelings about this because I... Uh, dislike the elevated status of these nine robed regents. Uh, and I, but I remember Nancy Pelosi saying, uh, well, this is a decision of the Supreme Court, so it's as if the voice of God has spoken. So Nancy Pelosi thinks the U.S. Supreme Court is the voice of God when it's ruling her way, and they think it's a totally illegitimate institution when it's not ruling uh, their way. So I don't, th- you know, again, again, the, the the issue here is that judge judges are as fallible as anybody else. And certainly, if you've ever found yourself up before a judge. Even if you're just in traffic court, you'll know that there are an awful lot of low-grade judges there. Uh, But then when you get to the Supreme Court, on the left-hand side of the bench, there the identity, oh, we've got some exciting new woman who's a black, uh, she's going to be a new judge and she's the first black female on the court. Isn't that what's her jurisprudence? Don't worry about that. She's a black female. She shattered the glass ceiling. And soon that... uh, gender fluid person called they and then we're going to have the first they them pronoun person uh, don't you think if their vacancy comes up joe biden's just put a, a gender fluid person as his deputy undersecretary of whatever don't you think joe biden would love to go down in history as the greatest president of all time because he put the first gender fluid person on the supreme court And then on the right, you have the ones you can get through the Senate without uh, Susan Collins and Mitt Romney and whoever peeling away and abandoning you. So they're not. They're mediocrities. They're mediocrities. There's no reason why these nine people should decide everything for the rest of you. And it's unbecoming uh, for a free society to accept that. But in the end, there is cowed and, you know, we went in nothing flat flat from the Supreme Court in 1986. So this is the wink of an eye. The Supreme Court in 1986 uh, saying sodomy is an act of uh, against nature and always has been and upholding the Texas anti-sodomy law to the uh, to, a, to, to, to the Supreme Court. Uh, turning on a, a, a dime and saying, no, 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 no. Now there's a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Why did they do that? Because they're playing catch-up to the culture too. Because they don't actually have the uh, fortitude to stand against it. And that's what's the most interesting thing about their finally deciding they're done with Roe versus Wade. Uh, You look at John Roberts. John Roberts is a classic finger. You know, John Roberts is the worst kind of judge. He he decides the outcome and then he figures how he's going to reason his way to that outcome. I don't actually like that in in judges. It's not something you particularly want if you've got a contract dispute or whatever. It's not something you particularly want in a criminal matter. 
but that is how he decides these things. He he's uh, and and his whole his whole thing. So he's looking. He's really he's really making. Uh, he's really deciding the case on extrajudicial grounds and then finding a judicial argument that will support it. And so what's interesting is that these guys calculated that uh, Roe versus Wade was done and that even if the the um, even if the Democrats go bananas over it and you look at the people who are on the streets uh, going crazy about it. You know, and this is one of the things where people are generally very ignorant and think, oh, yes, you know, I support a woman's right to... I don't think anybody should tell a woman what to put in her own body. body and I, you know, oh, don't, 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 don't tell me about Kermit Gosnell. Don't tell me about scissors being plunged. Don't tell me about people who snip the spinal cord of the little nine-month-old baby as it's merged. Don't, 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 I just want to be able to talk about a woman's right to choose and fluffy stuff like that. Um, but I think these guys actually calculated that as a general thing, Roe versus Wade doesn't have the salience that it would have had a few years ago. So again, um, you know, I don't, I don't like, I don't like the idea of this deference to judges. I like a deference to precedents. Precedent, and I, in judicial terms, I like a deference to precedent, and I like a deference uh, to uh, to uh, non-statute common law rights, and I like the presumption that anything that isn't specifically outlawed is thereby permitted, and I like a general diminished role. Uh, for judges in society. And as I always say, I agree with Lord Moulton that at one end of the spectrum, uh, there are things which one is obligated to do by law. In, throughout most of ho- human history, serve in the army or whatever. Uh, and, there, and the other end of the spectrum, there are things that one is specifically prohibited from doing by law, murdering people, that kind of thing. But the, the big bulk of human life in the middle uh, is socially regulated, and that ought to be about 85 90% of life that is socially regulated, that is within the realm of manners. And the trouble is the realm of manners has shrunk to about 40%. Kate Smythe writes from Down Under. Great work and well-deserved ratings on GB News, Mark. There's a long and interesting Twitter thread today by John Hayward of Breitbart, which includes a very profound observation. The ability to say no, to refuse, is the fountain of all liberty. Yes, I wouldn't disagree with that. Hayward emphasizes the importance of federalism and similar Steinian themes, noting, of course, the left-wing globalist project for decades has been to centralize power and then internationalize it, moving it utterly beyond the reach of voters. This was very much by design. They know federalism gives you more control and they don't like it one little bit. They're increasingly less shy about saying their agenda is beyond democracy 
And corruption is the horror plaguing the entire world. The corruption and waste in our federal system is absolutely sickening and it's permanent. There's no way to fix it without shifting power and money to the states, which can be monitored more closely and held more accountable. Uh, Kate continues, Ron DeSantis is doing a fantastic job in Florida, but unvaccinated quote-unquote, foreigners can only enter the U.S. and other Western countries illegally. With China-backed woke globalists running the planet and shrinking our horizons, is real freedom now a thing of the past? And we're just in denial. Uh, yes, I would, I would say that two, two very core freedoms. And this you have to set against, you know, these recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions. But we've seen a massive shrinkage of freedom of speech, for example. And the board at Twitter has accepted uh, the bid from Elon Musk, right? So all these people at Twitter, and you have to know from the personal viciousness of it, that while there are certainly algorithms, a lot of these accounts are taken down by real live human beings. And for example, as, as I said, it's, I'm, I'm cheered and I'm heartened and I'm pleasantly surprised that we have made a difference on our GB News show. And we have managed to get Her Majesty's government in the United Kingdom to recognize that vaccine injured and vaccine bereaved are a thing. It's not fake news. It's not a conspiracy theory. The government has accepted that real, actual people die from these vaccines or are chronically injured from these vaccines. And they've uh, decided to give the derisory sum of £120,000 to people who uh, have been injured or bereaved by them. Now, uh, they're not giving out a lot. I think uh, at the end of uh, today, as of today, there have been nine people and uh, over half of them have actually been on the Mark Stein show, which I'm flattered by. But uh, and it shows what you can do, by the way, if you actually want to use your power for good, as uh, I think Uncle Ben told Spider-Man or whatever it was. <laughs> and... Uh, but what I find interesting is so now these people have, have been recognized by the government. The government said, oh, yeah, you're entitled to, you're right, we accept that our vaccine, the vaccine we forced into your arm, more or less, killed your husband. You're now a widow in your 30s because of this vaccine. Uh, so here's, here's your money. When they then actually post that on Twitter, or they, uh, it's, it's still marked as misinformation and you can't share it and you can't like it. So we have a thing here where the narrative is actually more powerful than governments. So in other words, preventing people from knowing about what the government of the United Kingdom conceded last week is actually more important uh, to preserve, it's 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 more important to preserve the big shut up than it is to acknowledge that these people are actually uh, their their case has been recognised. So we're losing freedom of speech, and that's a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, then we have the situation uh, with, as as you say, Kate, with the lack of freedom of movement. 
which is now a permanent thing, formerly free societies, getting in and out if you're a non-citizen. You know, where I don't have my Canadian passport to hand, but it, it says it, the first words on page two are something like... Uh, uh, Her Majesty's uh, Secretary of State for External Affairs or whatever it is uh, uh, requests and requires all those whom it may concern to let the bearer pass without let or hindrance. <laughs> Good luck with that. Uh, passing, passing even with let and hindrance from one country another to another is basically over now. I mean, we've accepted the, the words in that passport and if... You look in an American passport or a UK passport or a French passport. You've got something similar. It's all basically global boilerplate. But it used to be acknowledged that unless you were someone uh, who was on a wanted list by Interpol, you could pass without let or hindrance. Now the only people who can pass without let or hindrance are the illegal immigrants demographically transforming the United States, demographically transforming the United Kingdom, demographically transforming Europe. Which is odd, isn't it? In itself odd that at a time when law-abiding person, a time if you're like an octogenarian snowbird in Toronto, you, you don't really know whether you'll be able to plan your time your four months uh, in uh, uh, your winter sojourn in Arizona or whatever, unless you comply with these constantly shifting COVID requirements. But at the same time, if, if you're a junior jihadist from the Sudan, you can just walk in across the Rio Grande. Now, I, the, the, again, the best way to look at things is to think that people mean what they say and people mean what they do. So when they're letting in these people, they're telling you what your country's going to be like, that they're the government. They can screw you over. They can freeze your bank account in 10 minutes. So that if they're letting all these people in and letting them have the run of the country, that's what they want. So we're seeing the end of freedom of speech. We're seeing the end of freedom of movement. And as Kate says, you know, First, the idea was to centralize power. I always go back to the thing in America when President McKinley died. They liked him. He was a decent old fellow and it was a shame he got shot. But he didn't actually have much say over their lives because the central government was not uh, a centralized power then. It had rather tightly circumscribed power. So... Mr. McKinley didn't have much, uh, didn't loom large in your daily activities. First, power gets centralized, and then, uh, as Kate put it, it gets internationalized. I had a very uh, powerful guy at the time, uh, John Bolton, and he was talking to me. We were just sort of sitting, chit chatting in the corridor during some event. And he was bemoaning the way the crazies had sounded uh, during the previous session. And he said, the European Union is basically in favor of the European Unionization of the world. And that's what you see. That's what the WEF and the WHO and all the other acronyms have in common. That the democratic deficit, as they call it in Europe, is not a bug, but a feature. And they want it. It makes it all the more, and they come, you know, they're, they're not yet, 
explicitly or routinely anti-democratic, or they, although they are increasingly so if you prod them a little. But they talk in these weasel terms like about stakeholders, for example. And stakeholders is a concept they use instead of democratic accountability for where you go to vote out someone. So they prefer to talk about stakeholders. But when you actually boil it all down, stakeholders turn out to be Bill Gates or the CEO of Pfizer. Uh, so so we're, uh, we're approaching a world where the citizen in a nation state is less important than he has been in maybe 200 years. And that is, that is, this is happening very fast. They're serious about it and they use whatever they have to hand. And I, I can't, I know people would say, oh, come on, Stein, uh, you're, you're getting a bit full bore conspiracy theorists with all this. Why can't we just talk about how this great big red wave that's going to come rolling in in November, and that'll be great, won't it? And then, you know, we can all be uh, elated about that and we won't have to worry about the Democrats for another couple of years. You know, no, 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 no. They're making plans for you all the time. The digital ID... Yeah, all the things that, for example, the survival, I listen to American radio as I'm driving around and the talk radio has a lot of these ads for survivalist things, right, where you can send off and they'll send you enough canned food for the next five years or whatever. Uh, and that's all well and good, except the food supply is breaking down and the food uh, and that's all going to hell. But the whole uh, but the whole idea that you can hold out you know, in an age when there's no money, you know, there's no money anymore. There's there's just going to be digital currency when you're going to need not a passport, but you're going to need a digital passport showing how many shots and boosters and all the rest of it you need. And according to whether you have any of these uh, uh, red flag things, you know, you, you get a bit carried away on social media or whatever. It's all happening very fast. They've got the technology for it and they're serious about implementing it. Nicola Timmerman writes, Nicola lives in uh, Francophone, Eastern uh, Ontario. And Nicola says, uh, security are not allowing people to bring in Canadian flags to Parliament Hill. Only one narrow entrance, like an airport screening lane. What do you think of all this? Plus, a journalist was not allowed to film the security barriers and was told he should delete the film, which he wouldn't do, and so he got banned from the Hill. This was David Medzis of Rebel News. I know David, Menzoid, the Menzoid. He interviewed me, I think, in Ottawa when I was testifying about something or other a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine that? You're not allowed to bring your national flag. Now, as I said, I'm. you know me. I don't really like that flag. I like my 1922 to 1957 red ensign with the green leaves and the bare breasts on the Irish harp. But it's, it is, you know, I'm not living in delusion. It happens to be the national flag. And in fact, it's a Liberal Party flag. It's a Liberal Party banner. It's Pearson's pennant, as they called it. And yet even that now cannot be 
brought to Parliament Hill on the national... You cannot bring the national flag to the national celebration of the national holiday. It's all over. Just, again, just pay attention to the things we say. Uh, Justin tells us, oh, Canada is the the first post-national state. So what use would he have for a national holiday or a national flag? And again, you know, there's lots of people out there who, for for them, Canada Day, Dominion Day is just a day to uh, go to the cottage, sit by the lake, have some hot dogs, uh, open a couple of beers, have a good time. This has been an extraordinary two years because for the first time, politics, the public policy actually impacts every aspect of daily life. Uh, Whether you can leave the house, uh, whether you can catch a train in Canada, whether you can catch a plane, whether you can leave the province, whether you can do your job, whether you can go to work. So we're not having a thing which is always bedeviled, you know, something. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. The jihadists, the jihad. I'm not really interested in foreigners. I just want to go to the lake. It's Canada Day. I want to have a hot dog and a beer. So don't uh, harsh my mellow by talking about uh, foreigners who want to blow me up. Uh, Oh, free speech, free speech. That's I know free speech is important to fellas like you because you like to be rude about all those foreigners who want to blow us up. But I just, you know, I just talk about uh, the good old hockey game and uh, sitting and shooting the breeze uh, by the lake, at the cottage, having a beer. And I get all that. I get all that. I'm not interested in politics, particularly myself. I mean, uh, one of the reasons I find it relaxing doing a show in the United Kingdom is because I have absolutely no bloody idea who the Lord Privy Seal is. And I couldn't be less interested in who the Lord Privy Seal is. That's all boring and it's irrelevant and it's not what matters. But the last two years have mattered because you can't actually sit by the lake now and have a hot dog and a beer. Because even that exists only at the discretion of an all-powerful government that says, oh, yeah, you can, okay, you can sit by the lake, but, uh, oh, wait, we've got some new variant coming in, so we'd like you to wear a mask, uh, and you can only have three other people there. So at some point, so what's disturbing about these last few years is that uh, we have actually seen a situation where politics affects everybody and uh, and yet at the same time people are still people are either not interested or they're content just to you know say oh look at this uh, yeah the covid's pretty bad but on the other hand i saw some nurses doing some crap dance routine on a zoom call and i thought that was uh, i thought that was really good you know, this this now, if they can get away and half the half the people too actually like being there having their lives micro regulated. So this is what is so this is what is so odd about it. It's uh you know if if people can't get interested in their stuff now at a time when, oh my granny died alone, it was horrible, none of us could get in there to see her. Okay, now are you interested? No, I think I'd still just like to go to the lake and have a beer and a hot dog. 
Uh, well, my kid's uh, suicidally depressive and uh, they don't want to have her at the school because she's completely de so uh, No, 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 I still, I'd just like to go to the lake and have a hot dog. Frank, uh, we'll take a couple more uh, questions. Frank Gallenstein or Gallenstein says, Hi, Mark, with the holiday weekend upon us, the 4th in the USA, and Dominion Day for our friends across the border, have you ever featured Stephen Foster in any of your Song of the Week shows? I don't know whether we've featured him on the Serenade show, so I don't believe we've ever done him on the radio. We've done Stephen Foster... Uh, we've certainly done in uh, essay form Beautiful Dreamer, which I uh, I really like. In fact, it's in the undocumented Mark Stein. I think that Beautiful Dreamer essay, because uh, it's, it's I think it's the only musical essay uh, or one of only a couple to make it into the undocumented Mark Stein. Uh, Frank says, I believe two states have claimed two of his songs as their unofficial state song, Kentucky, my old Kentucky home, and Florida... Suwannee River, and Ireland seems to have subtly claimed hard times come again no more. I'm not sure Canada has laid claims to any, but I wouldn't doubt there's one of them lurking out there for the unofficial taking. If you like, um, uh, we're going to have a, like a special Mark Stein show on Sunday. And uh, if you like a little bit of Stephen Foster, you may be in luck, Frank. Uh, and do prowl around the website and see if you can find that uh, the um, uh, uh, beautiful dreamer thing. Uh, where's uh, there's? Let's see. Oh, Brian from Minneapolis. Uh, says, uh, Dear Mark, it seems our institutions of government are only legitimate if they make decisions that the left wants. We even see that the Supreme Court can be stopped by a district court judge when they make a ruling they don't like. What is the purpose of having these institutions if they're just for show and the real ones in power are the ones that riot and spray paint threats? I guarantee you, if pro-lifers spray painted, if a fetus has no right to live, then neither to you. Uh, the FBI would be hunting them down. Your thoughts and best wishes, Mark. Yeah, it's power. It's power. You can devise ways to ameliorate that. Uh, America's checks and balances. In the British system, it's basically a dance between someone who... uh, uh, ex- who nominally exercises all executive authority, and then a politician to whom that is licensed, and so it's a it, it's a creative tension between the one who wields the power and the one whose only power is to restrain the guy wielding the power. And in America, that function is fulfilled by the Constitution and the checks and balances. And as I said, the reason I'm not interested in all the total wankery and the waving the Constitution is because it's pretty obvious. And, you know, again, the French and uh, the Germans and so forth of different systems. But we're all basically uh, heading in the same direction. And so it's not a, a... And the lesson to be drawn from that is that it's the temper of a people that uh, uh, it's the temper of a people that that determine uh, 
the general civilized quality of a society. So once the people do not have the temper of a free people, once free, you know, they have this thing where they basically think their democratic representatives are rulers, or they're even better, they're expert rulers, and even better, they're expert rulers who have achieved their power on merit as opposed to the haphazardness of heredity, then uh, you, people lose the habits of free people and... Uh, and as we have seen, are perfectly content to be treated as wards of the state. And that's the big, I think that's the biggest thing, Brian. The, and, and then you wind up with the situation uh, as it is with the, um, as it is with the Supreme Court, in which the legitimacy of institutions is nothing to do with whether they're genuinely expert, but just in whether what they do supports the overall narrative. This is this is abs- this is what's the issue here. It's not necessarily that uh, you know politicians have changed or that scientists have changed or that experts have changed. We've changed. We don't we don't think like people did a hundred and fifty years ago, and we think that in exchange, you know, all we have to do is listen to the experts. Like Dr. Fauci, oh, the sainted Fauci, he'll keep us safe. He'll keep us safe. And if we just do, if we just do what the experts say, then they in turn will take care of us. We've changed. We've changed. And we have to change back. And that's just the way it's got to go. Uh, a little more Dominion Day music to close. We've got as uh, rocky as I'm inclined to get with Joni. So here is an... Uh, Earlier generation of Canadian songwriters, Ralph Freed, born in Vancouver, May Day 1907. Ralph was the younger brother of the far more successful Arthur Freed, who became the preeminent producer of screen musicals at MGM, uh, Meet Me in St. Louis and Easter Parade and Singing in the Rain and Gigi and on and on and on. But uh, Ralph Freed had his moments too, just to recite the titles of his hits is to wallow in pure Canadiana this Dominion Day. I like New York in June, how about you? In a little Dutch mill. And uh, this one, uh, written with Prince Laleo Hoku II of the Hawaiian royal family. It was an involuntary collaboration on the part of His Highness. Laleo Hoku was a talented composer. And he wrote this tune in the 1860s, and three quarters of a century later, someone decided they needed an English lyric for it. And enter Ralph Freed. So what have I been saying? Go to the cottage by the lake, have a hot dog and a beer. Grab a case of Molson, a box of Timbits, a vat of poutine, and enjoy a quintessentially Canadian classic. There's a sunny little funny little melody That was started by a native down in Waikiki He would gather a crowd down beside the sea And they'd play his gay Hawaiian chant Soon the other little native started singing it And the hula hula maiden started swinging it Like a tropical storm, that's the way it hit Funny little gay Hawaiian chant Ahwe Ta-hua-la Ahwe ta Voila. Though it started on an island on Hawaii way, it's as pop 
popular in Tennessee or Iowa. If you wander into any cabaret, you will hear this gay Hawaiian chant. Does it get any more Canadian than that? The Hawaiian war chant, music and original lyric by Prince Lele'i Oku II, but English words by Ralph Freed of Vancouver. That was the Ames brothers, Ed Ames, who's a lovely man and who was in cracking form on that record, listens to our shows. And uh, like Canada and America, here's a birthday coming up in just a few days. Happy 95th, Ed. We shall have Rick McGuinness with his Saturday movie date, Stein Song of the Week, and some 4th of July observances all on deck this weekend at Stein Online. Happy Dominion Day, happy Independence Day. Stay safe, stay free. is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.